Donald Trump has less than an hour to respond to a judge. The lead starts right now. Lawyers for Donald Trump approaching a 5 p.m. deadline as prosecutors push to limit what the former president can say about the federal case against him. And after years of dodging the question, Governor Ron DeSantis bluntly says, of course Trump lost the 2020 election, as the former president's rival tries to reset his campaign. Plus, pink is the new green. Barbie, Taylor Swift and Beyonce proving to be big business for the U.S. economy. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead. Donald Trump is on the clock. His lawyers have just minutes to let a judge know what they think about a request that would block Trump from sharing some of the evidence in the January 6th case. Prosecutors say if Trump were to start publicly talking about or posting about evidence in the case, it could have a chilling effect on witnesses. And they point to this post Trump shared on Truth Social on Friday, where he wrote, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. But Trump's lawyers say over the weekend they're going to fight this request because they think the public should be able to see the evidence before the trial. In another major development in the case, CNN has exclusive reporting about an interview the special counsel conducted today with former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. This is the first investigative movement we've seen from the special counsel since Trump was indicted. So let's go straight to CNN's Paula Reed, who has been following every development in this case. Paula, let's start with this new exclusive reporting. What are you learning about today's interview? We've learned that Bernie Carrick, as you noted, he was the former New York police commissioner, but he was also a close associate of Rudy Giuliani. And he was part of the team that tried to investigate allegations of fraud following the 2020 election. Well, he met with special counsel prosecutors today for the first time. He was interviewed over several hours. And after that interview, his attorney, Tim Parlatori, spoke exclusively to CNN to talk about what they learned. Let's take a listen. Yeah, it was a little uh, cut short by incoming tornadoes, but I yeah. think we're all good to go. All right, so no, no preparing for tomorrow? Nah. No. All right. Not that uh, was not Jack tomorrow. Smith in the room with you? Nah, um, he, he didn't want to see me, I guess. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did they ask you about? Uh, it was mostly about you know, all the efforts uh, in between the election and January 6th of what the Giuliani team was doing and really just going through all of the efforts that they took at the time you know, to, to take all the complaints of fraud, see what they could do to chase them down, and really kind of establishing that at that time, you know, while they weren't able to necessarily establish proof, they had probable cause and they were you know, pursuing an investigation in good faith. Okay. Um, and you said you don't think that Julie is going to be charged? No, no, not, not at all. Because, you know, one of the things that Mr. Carrick made clear today is that he and Mr. Giuliani and that whole team, they were chasing these claims. They were limited by their time and resources. But ultimately, the idea that Rudy Giuliani was uh, intentionally pushing, you know, claims that he knew were false uh, is not something supported by the evidence. Anything out there? And Bianca, you can hear our colleague, Abby Baccini, asking those questions there in that exclusive interview. 
This is really significant because this is the first investigative step that we've seen the special counsel take since former President Trump was indicted last week in the January 6th investigation. Now, also notable that Tim discloses there that they were asked about Rudy Giuliani. That's something we certainly expected. But as he is understood uh, to be uh, mentioned in the indictment as co-conspirator one, a lot of questions about whether Rudy Giuliani will be charged. Bernie Carrick could be one of the most valuable witnesses to help answer that question, though the Carrick team expressing confidence that he won't be charged. And Bianca, we know there is at least one additional witness expected to speak with special counsel prosecutors over the next few weeks. And it's interesting to hear from Tim that uh, Jack Smith was not in in that meeting today as well. Uh, Paula, let's talk about this major deadline that's just moments away. How significant is it? Well, this is significant because here special counsel prosecutors are seeking a protective order over sensitive information in the January 6th investigation. To be clear, this is not a gag order. This would be an order to limit the former president's ability to share sensitive information over social media or in any other public forum. Protective orders are very common in cases, and here prosecutors appear to have a concern uh, based on the former president's habit of expressing his opinions on this investigation on social media that he may be inclined to disclose sensitive information uh, to the public. So they want a protective order limiting his ability to do that. Now, his attorneys uh, got this request uh, late Friday. They asked the judge for additional time to respond. She denied that request, so they have until 5 o'clock this afternoon to respond. But this is a pretty tight timeline, Bianca. It's just another example of how Judge Chutkin wants to move this along pretty quickly. Yeah, that deadline just minutes away. Um, All right, Paula Reed, we'll be watching. Thank you. Well, road closures are now in place around the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta. as security measures are put in place for a possible fourth Trump indictment. Prosecutors have been investigating Trump's and his allies' efforts to overturn the presidential election results in Georgia. CNN's Nick Valencia is outside the courthouse for us. So, Nick, when do we expect to learn about more possible indictments? It could come at any day now, Viana, and there are several indications that this sprawling and wide-ranging investigation, which has gone on for more than a year, could be nearing its end. Let me get out of the way here and show you what I'm talking about. Those orange barricades began being put up by police around the Fulton County Courthouse last week. This morning, metal barricades were added to Prior Street, that street that runs right in front of the courthouse to block vehicle traffic. Foot traffic is still open, but they are taking security here very, very seriously, in part because of the rhetoric from the former president. Former President Donald Trump has called this investigation politically motivated. He's called the DA, Fonnie Willis, who's leading this investigation, a racist, and that has added to the security concerns. We also have new information that we want to share with you. This just into CNN. Moments ago, we learned that former lieutenant governor here in Georgia, Jeff Duncan, has been asked to be, uh, or he was rather subpoenaed, uh, to appear before the Fulton County Grand Jury. And while he was lieutenant governor, he was the president of the Georgia Senate. It was the same Senate that Rudy Giuliani spoke in front of three times to spread election interference, lies, and conspiracy theories. Duncan joins two others who have been asked to subpoena, perhaps that coupled with the security precautions, perhaps the strongest indications that this investigation is nearing its end. Bianca? That is interesting. Nick Valencia in Atlanta for us. Thank you. Well, joining me to discuss is former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, always good to see you. So let me get you to react to what we just heard from Paula Reed, and that is that prosecutors met today with former police commissioner Bernie Carrick. Uh, what do you make of that? 
Well, it tells us that when prosecutors say their investigation is ongoing, it is indeed ongoing. Now, the way this is supposed to work is once you've indicted Donald Trump, as they have already, the ongoing investigation is only supposed to relate either to different charges or to different people. And hearing what Tim Parlator just said to Paula Reed, it certainly sounds like they're focused on Rudy Giuliani. We know he's been identified in the indictment as co-conspirator one. Parlator seems to think that they're not likely to charge Rudy Giuliani. I'm not sure I agree with that assessment, but we shall see. Ellie, meantime, when it comes to this 5 p.m. deadline for Trump's team to respond to the judge about publicly sharing evidence, Trump claimed on his Truth Social page today that I shouldn't have a protective order placed on me because it would impinge upon my right to free speech. But Ellie, that's not what this is about. I mean, the argument from prosecutors is that if Trump, quote, were to begin issuing public posts or using details or, for example, grand jury transcripts obtained in discovery here, it could have a harmful chilling effect on witnesses or adversely affect the fair administration of justice in this case. So given that, how do you expect the judge to rule on this? I do think the judge is going to issue some sort of protective order. It's important to understand what this would be and what this would not be. What this would do is limit Donald Trump's ability to take certain pieces of evidence and put them out in the public. What it would not do is limit Donald Trump's ability to see the evidence. It would not limit Donald Trump's ability to use any evidence in his own defense at trial. And it would not necessarily limit Donald Trump's ability to speak about the case publicly. So it seems like what prosecutors are asking for here is fairly narrow and tailored to protecting witnesses and a jury pool. And I think given the judge's insistence on a very quick briefing schedule, she's likely to grant that. In the meantime, we're beginning to see how Trump's legal team will defend him in this case. Over the weekend, his attorney, John Laura, was all over the, the morning shows, arguing that Trump's actions did not constitute a crime, but instead, he said, an aspiration. Listen. What President Trump did not do is direct Vice President Pence to do anything. He asked him in an aspirational way. Asking is covered by the First Amendment. So we know from the indictment and subsequent interviews that Mike Pence and his aides did not interpret Trump's actions as aspirational. But Ellie, is this a legitimate legal argument, at least for his lawyers to be making? Well, in theory, it is a legitimate legal argument. I just don't know that it's going to hold up given the facts of the case here. If indeed a person merely said, hey, public official, I hope you will do things this way or that way, that's hard to make that into a crime. But I think Jack Smith's position is Donald Trump did much more than merely benignly ask Mike Pence to do something. He pressured him to do something that they both understood was unconstitutional, was against the law. And it's important that we not sort of parse out each fact on its own and say, is that a crime in and of itself? Prosecutors are going to urge the jury, look, it's not just about the conversation between Donald Trump and Mike Pence. That is part of the broader fraud and the broader conspiracy that we've charged here. What did you make of Laura also saying that they believe Mike Pence will be one of their best witnesses at this trial? Boy, I I presume he knows more than I do, but based on the indictment, I don't think that's correct. It's clear that prosecutors are relying on Mike Pence as one of their key witnesses. There are paragraphs that seem to be based on Mike Pence's testimony Mm -hmm. and his handwritten notes, including this incident where Donald Trump said to Mike Pence, quote, you're too honest. And if we need another indicator, Mike Pence just said the other day that he was approached by Donald Trump's, and I quote Mike Pence here, gaggle of crackpot lawyers. That doesn't sound to me like a witness who's going to do any good for Donald Trump. Let's turn down to Atlanta and the case in Fulton County. Uh, Do you expect this to be a sprawling case with many people charged or a more narrow indictment like the one we saw last week? 
Oh, it's going to sprawl. I think that's quite clear. Fonnie Willis has been investigating this case for two and a half plus years now. Remember, the special grand jury foreperson came out and told us that they had recommended indictments of over a dozen people. That doesn't necessarily mean Fonnie Willis is going to follow that recommendation or that the actual grand jury is going to do that. But all indications are that this will be a very broad indictment. And the Wall Street Journal is interesting to see them report today that that lawyers who have worked with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in the past expect her to invoke Georgia's RICO Act. What does that mean? So RICO stands for Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations. There was originally a federal law passed to that effect, and now a lot of states, including Georgia, have followed suit. Essentially, as a prosecutor, if you're going to charge RICO, you have to show, first of all, the existence of a criminal enterprise, meaning an organization committing a pattern of racketeering activity, meaning two or more connected crimes. So it can be tougher for prosecutors to show, but if you can, the advantage is you get to charge the whole case and explain the entire enterprise to the jury. And I should note, the Georgia RICO law carries a mandatory minimum of five years in prison, meaning any person convicted of that has to go to prison for five years. That's actually even more severe than the federal RICO statute. Wait, quickly, do you, do you think that's what we'll see from her? I do, based on all the reporting and based on all the other indicators, yes. All right, Ellie Honig, always great to see you, my friend. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, All right. Coming up, after years of dodging the question, what Ron DeSantis is now saying that his chief rival still won't. Why the Florida governor is changing his tune, for now at least. Plus, a foil plot to assassinate Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. What we're learning about the woman allegedly behind it. And millions of Americans are bracing for severe weather. We'll tell you what to expect. That's all up next. In our 2024 lead, as Donald Trump's legal woes grow, Republicans on the campaign trail are offering their sharpest rebukes yet of the former president. It comes as the Iowa caucuses are just over five months away, and many of the GOP presidential candidates spent the weekend courting voters in the Hawkeye state. But as CNN's Jessica Dean reports, many of the campaign conversations are still centering around Donald Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis saying directly what his chief rival, former President Donald Trump, refuses to, that Trump lost the 2020 election. Of course he lost. Joe Biden's the president. DeSantis making the case in a new interview that if the 2024 election is about Trump and his legal battles, Republicans will lose. That's not a pathway for success for the Republican Party. I think a lot of our voters understand that. It's a similar line of attack former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has been using against the former president. I want Republican voters to know this is a preview of the election coming up if Donald Trump's the nominee. He'll be talking about Donald Trump rather than Joe Biden. And what we should be focused on is talking about Joe Biden and his record. And that's why he cannot be the nominee. Many of the Republican candidates spent the weekend in Iowa supporting voters in the first in the nation caucus state. Iowa is an important state, not because of the caucuses, that's an important thing, but for our national security. Food security is national security. You supply us with our food, you supply us with ethanol. I'm asking for your support in the January caucuses because I can pledge to you this, I will get the job done I will not let you down. But Trump continues to go after DeSantis. DeSantis has fallen very dramatically. And his other rivals, most pointedly his former vice president, Mike Pence, writing on Truth Social, quote, 
He's delusional, and now he wants to show he's a tough guy. Pence has been sharpening his criticism of Trump following the former president's third indictment, saying Trump put himself before the Constitution, and anyone who does that should not be president. President Trump was wrong. Uh, uh, He was wrong then, he's wrong now. I had no right to overturn uh, the election. And uh, uh, more and more Americans are coming up to me every day and recognizing that. Former President Trump continues to pull at the top of all of these polls looking at the Republican primary, Biana, And so all of these other candidates are looking for a moment to break out, to really make their move with voters. And we're about two and a half weeks from the very first debate. They're hoping that that could be it. Uh, but people like former Vice President Mike Pence, he hasn't met the threshold yet to get on that debate stage. And at this point, it's unclear if Trump mm-hmm. will be there or not. But it is certainly shaping up to be a very pivotal moment. And it's, it's so close now. Yeah, and these indictments, at least thus far, aren't impacting him right. with voters there. Um, Jessica Dean, thank you. Well, with me now is Doug High, the former communications director for the RNC, and Kate Bedingfield. She's the former White House communications director for the Biden administration. Welcome, both of you. So, Kate, let me start with you. So, yes, DeSantis had to be pressed, and it really is just stating the obvious. But nonetheless, it was notable. What do you make of him finally saying, of course, Trump lost? Well, the fact that this is a baseline litmus test for Republican candidates who are running for president is is frankly shows you where the bar is. I mean, this is Donald Trump's party. And the fact that it took Ron DeSantis this long to even acknowledge uh, what very clearly happened legitimately in 2020 uh, is is pretty startling. And I think, you know, the other important thing to think about here is we saw the, the clip of him saying, of course, he lost. But, you know, he's also continued to sow doubts about mail-in ballots and about uh, the legitimacy of the election around the edges when, of course, there is no evidence that there was uh, any fraud. But so, you know, I also think that's a really peculiar uh, political strategy, given that, you know, uh, casting doubt about mail-in ballots, given that mm. the aim here is to get as many people to vote for you as possible. And so continuing to sow doubts in people's minds about the legitimacy and the validity of being able to vote by mail, where they can vote from the convenience of their home and send it in, that seems like a really peculiar political strategy to me. So, Doug, Kate just teed you up for mm-hmm. what we heard from DeSantis <laughs> saying, yes, Trump lost, but mm-hmm. still placing it down on the 2020 election. Listen to what he said. I don't think it was the perfect election. I remember after a lot of the media was saying this is the most secure election in history. How could it be the most secure with those millions of mail ballots going out? It wasn't the media saying that it was the most perfect election. It was Trump's own Department of Homeland Security that put out a statement days after the election saying that it was the most secure in American history. So why do you think up until this day so many Republicans still can't accept that? Uh, Well, it's part of a chicken and egg process, you know, because Republican voters have been told this time and time again by Donald Trump, they tend to believe it. And it it comes at a real cost. When I started uh, beyond in in politics, one of the things that was remarkable to me was the advantage Republicans had on what we used to call the absentee ballot chase. And in North Carolina, where I worked two Senate races while I was in college, uh, what, what we would do is we would send people absentee ballot, uh, ballots and we would chase them day after day until they returned them. It was a big part of why we would win those races in North Carolina and nationally. Under Trump, we've seen to really throw that in, in the waste bin. And even as Trump has come around on mail-in ballots a little bit, the, those doubts have still been sown. And my concern for Republicans moving forward is as we have Donald Trump go through multiple trials, we're going to hear over and over again from Trump that, they're, that essentially the election was a fraud, that it was stolen, and all these things that tell voters, as we've learned in Georgia Senate races, to stay home. It has a real impact on how voters operate. Hmm. 
Doug, let's move on to the topic of Trump's legal woes. Um, Rich Lowry, the editor-in-chief of the National Review, has an op-ed in the New York Times on how the indictments appear to be helping Trump, at least thus far. And here's what he wrote. He said, there are many Democrats who still believe that they can somehow indict Mr. Trump out of presidential contention, but many Republicans who oppose him have dreaded the indictments as sure to, to bolster him, and so it has proved. A figure like Mr. Trump, a colorful populist adored by a political base that loves him in part because he is so embattled, is unlikely to be taken down by the very authorities he says are corrupt and arrayed against him. Doug, do you agree with Rich there? Uh, to some extent, yes. And th there are a few reasons for that. One is what we see with these indictments, and I, I, I think obviously they're very serious both politically and legally for Trump, is it reinforces his core message. Bizarrely, an indictment reinforces Donald Trump's standing within the party and sort of proves his point that the system is rigged. There's a two-tier system of justice. All things I think are false, uh, but politically sure Donald Trump in the short and immediate term. But also some of this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It shores up Donald Trump because his opponents shore up Donald Trump. His, his opponents have echoed that it's a two-tiered system of justice, that this is a sign that it's rigged. And ultimately what we see, Bianca, is in Star Wars we learned that Luke Skywalker eventually had to confront Darth Vader. He couldn't sit back and just wait for the Force or Han Solo to take care of it for him. So a Ron DeSantis, a Tim Scott, a Mike Pence, if they want to win, the nomination goes through Donald Trump and you have to confront him. You can't hope that somebody else will do it for you. Hope is never a political strategy. Yeah, so far it's Mike Pence and maybe Chris Christie that are really speaking out against these indictments and supporting the Justice Department thus far in making them. Uh, Kate, on Saturday, Trump called Mike Pence, quote, delusional. But it was interesting that former Alabama Congressman Mo Brooks, a Republican, has rushed to Mike Pence's defense. And here's what he tweeted. He said, Donald Trump says Mike Pence is delusional, a liar. Well, Mike Pence, not a serial adulterer, not found guilty of sexual assault or rape, not paid porn star hush money, not say make Mexico pay for wall and not even try. Pence equals honest. Trump equals con. Character matters. Does it surprise you that we haven't seen more of a reaction similar to this from other Republicans? Well, I mean, look, there's probably not a lot that former Congressman Brooks and I agree on, but I agree with that. There's no lies, no lies spotted, as the kids like to say. But, you know, but it's also important to remember, of course, that Donald Trump and Congressman Brooks have a contentious history themselves. President Trump uh, revoked his uh, his endorsement of Congressman Brooks in the Alabama Senate race. So I think he's uh, grinding a personal axe here a little bit as well. But look, Across the board, it is incumbent on Republicans to call out Donald Trump. I agree uh, with my friend Doug. No one is going, Trump is not going to fall on his own. Hope is not a strategy. And so if Republicans are going to reclaim the heart of their party, they are going to have to call him out. And I think it's also important to remember that writ large, this is an alienating strategy for the independent voters. You know, we're all kind of mired in the Republican primary right now, but whoever emerges from this primary uh, is going to be running against uh, President Biden, who has spent the last two years laying down an economic foundation, tack you know, passing legislation to tackle the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen wages outstrip inflation. So he has taken steps and he's able to go to people and say, here are the things that I have done that impact your life. And it's a lot harder when Republicans are squabbling with each other about, uh, you know, uh, about character uh, for them to make a compelling case to voters that they should be elected and that they're going to actually move things forward for them. So I think that that contrast is going to be incredibly powerful for the Democrats and for President Biden moving forward. Because the Republicans have made very clear that this is where they intend to keep the conversation.
Well, Doug, for now, I mean, overwhelmingly, the Republicans seem to be in their strategy continuing to criticize the Justice Department for bringing these charges against Donald Trump. But listen to what Senator Mitch McConnell, what he argued after the Senate acquitted Trump on impeachment charges of inciting an insurrection. Listen to what he said just a month later. Impeachment was never meant to be the final forum for American justice. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. So is it just that too much time has passed? I mean, Doug, Republicans are criticizing the DOJ for doing exactly what Mitch McConnell and others thought it should do. Well, it shows how much the the party has been subsumed by all things Trump, that ultimately we have so many politicians who are trying to score points with Donald Trump and his base. And the reality is Donald Trump doesn't give points. He only takes them away one at a time. So you have to back them today. You have to back them tomorrow, whether that's Manhattan, Georgia, the Department of Justice, wherever the next indictment may come, if there are more indictments to come, you always have to back Donald Trump if you want to play his game. All right, Doug. Hi, Kate Bedingfield. I finally get to welcome you to the network. Kate, good to see you. you. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Well, ahead, the foiled plot to assassinate Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. How the Ukrainian government say they caught the suspect red-handed. In our world lead, Ukrainian officials say Russian missiles hit residential buildings in both the Donetsk and Kharkiv regions, killing a total of at least seven people and injuring more than 35 others. It's the latest attack from Russia after Ukraine blew up parts of a critical road that linked occupied Crimea with parts of the Kherson region over the weekend. All this escalated violence as Ukrainians say that they've stopped an assassination plot against President Volodymyr Zelensky. Seen as Nick Peyton Walsh is in Zaporizhia for us. Uh, Nick, the Ukrainians say they caught an alleged Russian informant. What more do we know about this woman and the plot to kill Zelensky? We don't quite know how far this plot progressed. And it's important to bear in mind that Volodymyr Zelensky is a, certainly a hunted man by Moscow. He often goes to the front line to corral troops. And so this plot standing out, frankly, because of the Ukrainian security services uh, bid to essentially publicize some of its details. What do we know? We don't know the nationality of this informant. We do know that she is a woman who lived in Ochakiv, that's a peninsula off the coast close to Crimea, uh, and that she worked in a military service store. Allegedly, this plot was about uh, the recent visit of Zelensky to Mykolaiv, a port city on the southern uh, coast. And she was apparently requested in messages that the SBU, the Ukrainian security services, put out, uh, allegedly with her Russian interlocutors, asked about times, dates, to perhaps take pictures of the location. Now, I should also point out that the Russian, uh, sorry, the Ukrainians have arrested about 29 or so informants in the last few months or so. So this is something that does occur relatively regularly, but there was clearly something about this plot that made them feel they needed to publicise it. But again, a reminder of how Zelensky is someone persistently who Russia would like to kill. Biana? As you said, occurs relatively regularly, specifically in that part of the country, the eastern part of Ukraine there. Uh, Let me ask you about what happened over the weekend in Saudi Arabia. We saw peace talks held there. More than 40 nations came, including Ukraine, the United States and China. Notably, Russia was absent. Uh, Saudi Arabia and China are very close. So how did this come about and what came out of it? 
I think this is really a bid not to start peace talks, but it's about framing the narrative in the event that over the winter, like I think some analysts suspect, we do see negotiation take perhaps more a prominent role if the winter slows down battles on the front line. What's key about this is China, frankly. Yes, there are Saudi Arabia inviting many of the Global South nations, some of whom have had quite close relationships with Moscow in the past. But the fact China was there and the fact that China said that this consolidated the international consensus, that does suggest that perhaps the Americans really kind of trying to guide this, have managed to form a narrative with Ukraine about exactly what the terms of any peace deal might originally be. And that's bad for Moscow. Yeah, President Zelensky's chief of staff said the group may meet uh, as soon as a month and a month and a half away again. Uh, Nick Payton Walsh in Zaporizhia with always great reporting for us. Thank you. Well, coming up, 130 million Americans are bracing for severe weather. Who's going to be affected by tornadoes and 75 mile an hour winds? We'll tell you up next. Heads up for the East Coast. This is the kind of severe weather headed your way. Just look at these images. This is just south of Knoxville, Tennessee. A line of supercell thunderstorms is moving closer to major East Coast cities from New York all the way down to Georgia. This line could cause flash flooding, tornadoes, even hurricane-force wind gusts. Storms could get so bad that the federal government shut down D.C. offices. So let's get right to CNN meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, tell us what you're seeing and what's making you so alarmed when you see these maps. What's making me alarmed right now are that the storms have not lined up into a squall line yet. When that happens, when you get them all lined up, they kind of fight with each other. When they're all by themselves, that's what you just said was a supercell. They can begin to rotate and put down tornadoes. So this is the area here, like you said, all the way from New York, all the way down to Alabama, for that matter. But the wind gust potential here, 75 to 80 miles per hour, that's the biggest threat. Smaller threat, because these may be small tornadoes, but not if it's small, if it's near your house. But this is the area from Philadelphia down through D.C. That's where we're seeing the strongest storms right now. Tornado watch is in effect in red, severe thunderstorm watch in yellow. And some are rotating, not that far from Charlottesville, Virginia, not that far from Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. We do have storms that are all by themselves, separated from the rest, that are producing a little bit of rotation. That doesn't mean every rotating storm is going to put down a tornado, but it's certainly going to be possible. Look at all of the warnings in a line. So here we go. Closer up to the northeast here into D.C., probably another hour before you start to see it in the western Virginia area. Starting to see, had some rotation near Front Royal not that long ago. Zooming in here to D.C., yes, there's one right there. That is now a new tornado warning. That looks like that's near Marshall. Still a ways away from D.C., even not party really of a D.C. suburb, but an Exburg way out there. But if the storm is that potential right now, it could have that potential as it gets right or close to I-95 for sure. All the storms should be gone by 8 o'clock tonight. So the 6,000 planes that are delayed, maybe you'll get out. Maybe you might have to get out tomorrow. There's an awful lot of potential here still before this finally ends, likely after 10 o'clock tonight. Yeah, everyone should be heeding their local weather alerts. These are not your typical summer storms. Chad Myers, thank you. You're welcome. Well, up next, the female forces driving the economy this summer as the Barbie movie makes more than $1 billion. And then you've got Beyonce and Taylor Swift dominating sold-out shows. Our favorite segment, that's ahead. The world is seeing pink, and that means a lot of green at the box office.
Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Barbie. Hi Ken. Hi Ken. <laughs> Over the weekend, Barbie became the first film with a female solo director to surpass one billion dollars in ticket sales around the world. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich joins us for more on this. So, Vanessa, director Greta Gerwig accomplished this in just three weeks. That's something that has taken other billion-dollar movies months. Amazing to hit a billion dollars and amazing to do so in such a short amount of time. Just take a look at these box office numbers. Domestically, the film pulling in $459 billion and then internationally, $572 million at the box office, bringing it well above $1 billion in overall sales. And Barbie becoming now the 53rd movie only to cross the $1 billion mark, and that makes Greta Gerwig the first female director to cross a billion dollars. And you see on the screen, though, Barbie has a long way to go before it becomes a top movie earner. You have Avatar, Avengers, and Titanic all well above $2 billion, but certainly beyond a $1 billion, still an accomplishment in itself. A great early start, no doubt. And Greta Gerwig is not the only woman with an enormous economic impact right now. You've been reporting on this all day. Taylor Swift and Beyonce are actually impacting inflation and the GDP with their current tours. That's right. Two big, huge economic powerhouses. We have one economist telling us that they believe that Taylor Swift will generate $5 billion in U.S. GDP because of ticket sales, airfares, hotels and merchandise. And uh, we also have world leaders wanting to get in on a piece of the economic Taylor Swift pie. You have the mayor of Budapest, Hungary and the president of Chile, both writing to Taylor Swift asking her to come to their city and their country. And you also have Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeting this to Taylor Swift. He says, it's me. Hi. I know places in Canada would love to have you, so don't make it another cruel summer. We hope to see you soon. And Taylor Swift adding Toronto to her tour list. And we cannot forget Beyonce. She has done in the past historically seven hundred and sixty seven million dollars in terms of money coming in from her world tours. This tour is expected to do just as well, if not more. And on the inflation front, though, Beyonce has caused a little bit of a stir when she launched her world tour in Stockholm, Sweden. The country was feeling high inflation. Economists were hoping to see it dip in the month of May. Beyonce had other plans when she came to town. So many people wanted to see her. They were spending like crazy. So they were happy to have Beyonce, Bianna, but they were not happy to have high inflation. But I bet you they would say that was money well spent today. <laughs> Vanessa yes. Yurkevich, thank you with our favorite story of the day. Also in our money lead today, Zoom, the parent, the company that virtually connected people during the pandemic and also opened up the possibilities of remote work, now wants its own employees to come back into the office. CNN's Tom Foreman is here to explain how this works. So, Tom, Zoom isn't the only company that's cutting back on allowing its employees to work from home, given that its name is synonymous with working from home. How do you interpret this? Uh, oh, the irony. Yes, they want people back at least two days a week. And they've joined some other big names like Google, Amazon, Salesforce, and the U.S. government saying, yeah, we want more people to come back into the office. The general reason you always hit is that, that they say it's more productive, there's more of a community, there's more of that synergy people like to talk about. 
they want to get people back at least more than they have been, saying it'll be better, including Zoom. So how are people responding? Are they willing to come back in? Not very well, (laughs) as you might expect. Look, if you look at the numbers here, when firms allow remote hybrid work, those firms in this period of time saw a 5% increase in their workforce. More people want to join in. Look down here, 2.6% for those who want only in-person. This really focuses on better educated, younger workers who do not want to be trapped this way. Generally, employers want only 1.6 days per week of remote work. Workers want more, 2.3 days. And we don't divide our days this way. So as a practical matter, workers are pushing for three days a week at home. They want two days a week at home. That's sort of what it works out to. Pretty big difference. Why do workers want it? This And this is where it really becomes a very key issue here. Look, you don't have to commute. 48% say that. Childcare is easier. Better able to focus. In all, workers say they see working from home as an 8% salary hike. No wonder workplaces are struggling. It is a sensitive topic. Tom Foreman, thanks for breaking it down for us. Well, finally, in our money lead, a real kitchen table issue. When you think Campbell's, you probably think soup. You've known them since you were a kid, right? But the company is much bigger. Swanson's chicken broth? Yeah, that's Campbell's. Snyder's pretzels? Surprise, that's them too. And now, for all of you fans of upscale pasta sauces, when you think of Rouse, you also need to think of Campbell's. As of today, it's buying Sovos brands. Rouse parent company. The deal is valued at $2.7 billion. That is a lot of sauce. As long as the taste doesn't change, I'm okay with it. Well, next, remembering the legendary career of a man who turned a staircase into a symbol of terror. But first, a look at what's up next in the Situation Room. Here's Wolf Blitzer. Hey, Wolf. Hey, Bianca. Thank you. Uh, We're going to see what happens at the top of the hour. This is important. When the Trump team is up against the deadline in the January 6th case, I'll ask Uh, We'll discuss Trump's potential criminal indictment in Georgia as well with the state's former Lieutenant Governor uh, Jeff Duncan. We're learning Duncan was subpoenaed in the grand jury investigation of Trump's efforts to overturn the presidential election results in Georgia. That's coming up and a lot more all the day's important news right here in the Situation Room at the top of the hour. In our pop lead, some sad news. William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist and The French Connection, has died. With the Father and the Holy Spirit. Damien. Amen. Friedkin's films were box office successes in the 1970s, earning him an Oscar for Best Picture in the 1972 for The French Connection. The Exorcist is one of the highest grossing films of all time and was mostly shot in Washington, D.C.'s Georgetown neighborhood, turning these steep stairs into a landmark. Jake Tapper interviewed Friedkin at the foot of the iconic stairs back in 2015 and asked him about their importance in the film. Did you have any idea when you were shooting it that this would become so iconic and that decades later the film would still be so important? Absolutely not. Uh, You never have any idea like that. It's the luck of the draw. I always felt that these steps were like a metaphor for the story of the film, the ascent from darkness up into light. Friedkin's wife said he passed away at home from heart failure and pneumonia. He was 87 years old. Well, that is it for us this hour. Thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.